You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Sila. Welcome back to Discriminology uh, with one of your co-hosts. This is Sid. Uh, if you haven't tuned in to our episode from last week, episode five, uh, please go give it a listen and then come back. We'd like to have you. Uh, so hello. Hi. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back. Good morning. Good evening. Whatever time you're listening to this. Um, this is episode six and we will be talking about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that we are all currently still um, living through and the racial disparities that resulted from um, this pandemic and how it disproportionately affected people of color, communities of color, black people. Um, and we're gonna be talking about some alarming statistics uh, relative to this pandemic. We'll be highlighting how these communities were disproportionately affected by the virus. And we're gonna be unpacking most importantly um, exactly how and why this entire thing kind of transpired um, the way that it did. Um, and we also have another special guest uh, this episode who will be introduced later on. Uh, but first, before we, before we jump into that, I just want to shout out uh, my co-hosts. Hey, everyone. It's Malik. Hey, everyone. It's Sandra. So without further ado, I will introduce our special guest. So today on the show, we have Jennifer Carmona. Um, Jennifer Carmona is a veteran public health professional. For over 25 years, she has worked to improve the health of urban communities, focusing on HIV care and services and health care quality. Jennifer is a doctoral candidate in the health policy at the City University of New York Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. And so Jennifer, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks. Jennifer took the liberty of sending over some really, really thorough research. She sent over an, argu an argument that was broken down into nine steps as to why um, COVID-19 pretty much ravaged the United States. So the first point she has here is the underfunded public health system. So Jennifer, do you want to dive into that? Yeah. Um, I mean, first, I want to give a shout out to the original source of this. So this is from Dr. Aisha Khan, who is an infectious disease scientist, and she summarized this really nicely on Instagram. And you know, if you're a public health nerd like like I am, um, you can find and follow a lot of great public health thinkers, both on Twitter and Instagram, um, and they've been doing some great public service breaking down COVID-19. Um, so yes, Dr. Khan talked about uh, a number of different points and the first um, is related to our underfunded public health system. Um, and this is related, I think, a lot to some of one of the other points she made, um, which is that we have um, a profit-driven healthcare system in the US. And um, we've historically not invested in, in public health and public health agencies. And that means both local health departments, that means public health at the federal level, so CDC, for example, um, as well as uh, healthcare, particularly in 
communities of color because we've, we've depended on a for-profit uh, model for, um, for our healthcare services. In New York City, for example, hospital closures have been concentrated among safety net institutions, and that's a catch-all term we use for institutions that primarily serve poor communities and serve Medicaid beneficiaries and, and the uninsured. In New York State, for example, state cuts to the Medicaid reimbursement system really exacerbated the the fragility, the financial fragility of, of these types of hospitals contributing to closings and to consolidations. Under the Affordable Care Act, um, Medicaid expansion and some other provisions has helped to expand availability of medical care in some underserved communities, but it has to make up for years and years of, of historic underfunding. Jen, you raise an interesting point. Doesn't a for-profit healthcare system organically create conflicts of interest between healthcare executives, um, employees, and obviously the patients and communities they serve? Yes. Um, I mean, that's, and that's part of the problem. And by for-profit healthcare system, what I mean is that, you know, this, this depends regionally, but we have hospitals, for example, um, throughout the country, some are for-profit. Most hospitals, though, are non-for-profit and some are, some are public. But we still use the same model regardless of ownership, right? We still use a, a market-driven model for our healthcare services. So regardless of whether we're talking about a for-profit institution or a non-for-profit institution or a public institution, they still have to rely on revenue to run. And many of the other systems that they interact with are for-profit systems. So our pharmaceutical system is a for-profit system. Um, nursing homes are, are, are predominated by, for, by for-profit models. The insurance companies that they work with. Insurance companies are predominated by, by for-profit models. And, and we ask hospitals, even though they provide um, a public benefit, to, to sink or swim based upon their own resources, which isn't to say that they don't also benefit from some, let's say, uh, tax dollars in the case of some hospital systems. They certainly benefit from Medicare and Medicaid, which are public insurance systems, but we still insist that they, um, that they exist within, within, within a marketplace. It's a huge misconception about non-for-profits because they still have to make money. Um, they, exactly what you said, they're ran by a CEO and a full board. Mm-hmm. They exactly like any other corporation would. They're going to have the same strains to do business. Yeah, they're still under the same types of financial pressures um, that even a for-profit system is, is under. Now, a for-profit system answers to shareholders, um, but a non-for-profit system, um, some of them are, are, very, are very wealthy, um, and they don't necessarily provide the type of pen- public benefit that you would expect given, um, given the, uh, the tax benefits that, that they enjoy. Right. As this relates to kind of, so I guess like the beginning when this, um, when COVID first reached, you know, our country and it was, it was spreading, um, why so many people in our country weren't able to get testing just like from the start, just why, why testing was such a, an issue in so many places, just people to go in and, and, and get the COVID test. Yeah, well, you know, I think bringing up and talking about how healthcare is, is financed and structured in this country provides an important historical context for why communities of color um, have been so disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. But when it comes to this particular crisis that we are in, um, I can't really fault hospital systems and healthcare systems for that because the response that was required to this had to come from the federal policy. It had to come from the federal government. And the federal government's failure set the stage for where we're at. But, but this crisis landed in an environment of, of enormous inequity already. Right. 
Absolutely agree. That kind of leads to the second point. The next point that was cited in the document was a lack of collectivism. It says here that high-risk communities were especially endangered to being predisposed to COVID due to lack of resources, lack of access to care. Overall, the, the United States government didn't have a unified front in taking on COVID. So can you, you kind of expand on that? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting point, and I think it speaks um, really directly to our overall culture when it comes to, to this country. Um, and it also, I think, speaks to, um, to a certain culture of, of white supremacy as well. We really value in this country, you know, individualism and the notion of individual agency. Um, and, and we do that, I think, at the expense of, of being concerned about the, the greater the greater good and, and the greater well-being and and I think that was reflected certainly in the federal response but we also see it um, in the response of individuals to things like mask mandates that type of thing it's a it's an attitude um, this attitude of individualism above all else that's really um, fundamentally at odds with with basic public health principle which which really demands that we look to 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 the greater good and that we attend to that um, and we see the folly um, when that when that doesn't happen. You know, anti-vaccination movements I think are a, a great example of this, where where individuals feel like their their personal beliefs and their personal freedoms are more important than contributing to herd immunity, which is which is which is a necessary component of 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 you know of, of vaccination uh, response movements. Right. And you, and you had all the protests to not wear a mask. So I was literally just going to say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People being uh, glued to their individual rights. Um, it's, it's funny because even when you want to talk about individual rights, constitutionally, your individual rights end when they affect the rights and well-being of another person. Even from that standpoint, it's a pretty shaky argument. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, you know, in, in, when I was studying public health, um, when I was getting my master's degree many years ago, uh, we actually read John Stuart Mill on liberty. Uh, and, and we talked about that particular notion at length that, um, you know, your, you, you know, your freedom to what, ha what's the, what's the, uh, the metaphor, the cliche, your, your freedom to throw a punch, you know, ends where my, where my nose begins. Yeah. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to make a point really quick about where I remember, like, when, we were, when I was watching the news and stuff, and, like, you know, this was, again, just starting to kind of, like, get crazy, and how, like, repeatedly, I, just for some context, I live with my grandmother, who is um, 79, and is in that, is considered, she has, you know, she, she's a cancer survivor, she has other predisposed conditions, so she was in that group of, like, vulnerable people, vulnerable population, um, and I just remember, like, how, how much it was reported like you know, the government pointed out all of these vulnerable groups, you know, elderly people, people with predisposed conditions. There was so much reporting on people who are vulnerable and people who shouldn't be going outside and shouldn't be. But then there was nothing. It was kind of like there was no like response or actual tangible resources given. Like my grandmother couldn't go get a COVID test for so long. Like there was weeks and weeks went by, and we and like we couldn't even find a location for her to get tested i mean she wasn't trying to leave the house to get in the beginning anyway but like, you know what i mean it was like you're you're pointing out all these vulnerable groups and doing absolutely nothing to attend to actually attend to them sid to your point even though we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world we rank the lowest in terms of healthcare outcomes furthermore we perform the worst globally in terms of the pandemic response and that and that's not in comparison to affluent nations 
that's just the global ranking. We are among the bottom performers. Furthermore, just as some general healthcare statistics, we have the lowest life expectancy, the highest rate of chronic disease, and the least amount of doctors per person relative to other affluent nations. It's crazy that we have so many disenfranchised groups in such a wealthy nation, a world leader. That really speaks to the underlying reason why this virus ravaged our country the way that it did. Um, I, I really do, because like you just said, Malik, like we are the most, the richest, most powerful country on the planet, yet somehow we're, we're where we're at right now. So. so Jennifer, that takes us right into the point of the predisposed systematic inequalities within our country. So do you, do you want to elaborate on what we're alluding to? I was just reflecting upon, um, you know, what, what Sid was saying before, and we, we ask our healthcare system to compensate for for, for systemic racism, for, for historic inequities. And it's an impossible task for healthcare systems to be able to do that. We do the same thing with some other public services. We do the same thing with public education um, as well. Um, and we, we, we put the blame on them instead of examining um, systemic um, issues. You know, the social inequities, um, including racism, but I would say primarily among them, them racism um, has have definitely contributed to what we're seeing when it comes to the disparate impact. Um, and you could look to any number of factors. You could look to um, the disproportionate um, numbers or percentages of people of color in service systems or who are among what we call the essential workforce. You could look to um, the numbers of or the disproportionate percentage of people of color who are in you know, overcrowded housing or in multi-generational housing. Um, you know, you could look to underfunded healthcare systems within those communities, you could look to the, to the um, you know, disparate distribution of resources in response to this pandemic. You could look to any number of things. But one thing that, that I think is, is something that we haven't yet grappled with because we're still trying to understand how the mechanism by which COVID-19 um, contributes to actual illness within the body is this notion of, of allostatic load. And um, an allostatic load is, is a term um, that was coined by these two researchers, McEwen and Steller, and it refers to the damage that comes from persistent stress that can affect the body system. So the immune system, the endocrine system, circulatory, metabolic, psychological, what have you. And, and, and the theory is that this contributes to both disease acquisition and may accelerate disease progression. And racism is the type of stressor that contributes to allostatic, um, or that may contribute to allostatic load. Again, we're very early on, um, relatively, in understanding how COVID-19 actually operates in the body, but I don't think we can discount the, the effect of racism physiologically on, on, on black and brown bodies. Well, you were even, Sid was even saying before how her grandmother had predisposed conditions. Don't black Americans make up the strong majority of Americans that have underlying chronic illnesses? Absolutely. Um, that, is, that is very true. Um, disproportionately impacted by cardiovascular disease, um, by diabetes, by the types of conditions that places them at higher risk of morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. Um, but I think we sometimes confuse, and we do this in public health, but we also do this, I think, in, in the popular media. We, we confuse... Um, race with racism when it comes to what we what when it comes to risk factors so you hear the the term high risk a lot or risk factor in public health and sometimes we say quite lazily that race is a is a risk factor race isn't a risk factor racism is is the risk factor 
and we also talk a lot in public health um, about the extent to which, let's say, behaviors or particular conditions like homelessness increase the likelihood of exposure to risk, but behavior really still needs to be examined in the context of, of environment. You know, substandard housing is, is a risk, um, but what are the environmental conditions that, that, make, that make substandard housing exist? Even if you look at low-income communities that are dominated by black and brown people, it's the housing conditions that you spoke of. If you look, if you look around the neighborhood, I mean, Trader Joe's isn't in underfunded neighborhoods. You have McDonald's and Burger King and Crown Royal and, and just the entire lifestyle that poor people are subjected to is pretty much sets them up for this. Yes, and that's a perfect example. We talk so much about how people's, um, let's say their diet and exercise decisions are responsible for their health, but, but your decisions occur in an environment and you, have, you, you can make decisions about what you eat and how much your body is able to move only as much as your environment supports that. Based on the options you have available to you. Similar to what you all just discussed, the fact that the hospitals, um, doctors' offices, any type of healthcare facility really, and how those institutions are either lacking or severely, severely, severely um, underfunded and inefficient in serving black and brown communities. And so when these people try to go and get the help that they need, you know, obviously they run into that wall as opposed to other communities. Right. And, you know, and I want to give a shout out to the work that healthcare providers have done throughout this pandemic. In New York City, we have a robust public hospital system, and their mission is to treat everyone regardless of ability to pay. And they have done heroic work um, treating COVID-19 in communities of color among poor people. Um, but they've done it in a setting that is chronically underfunded. Um, and it's not for nothing that a lot of these same systems also employ many black and brown people. So we're sending people to work in these environments where they're acting heroically um, and we treat them as heroes, but we still don't provide them with the resources they need to treat their patients as well as they would like, as well as to take care of themselves. And on the topic of overcrowding and environment, I think it behooves us to not mention at least allude to the prison system and nursing homes that are also dominated by people of color. I mean, the prison industrial complex warrants its own episode, and, and we'll get into that. But just, just to throw some numbers around, the United States has the largest incarceration rate with 2.3 million inmates, 23% being over the age of 50, which again alludes to a risk factor for COVID-19. All these detention centers, prisons, jails, and any variation of the sort is overcrowded, unsanitary, and similar to the hospital system is for profit and based on making money. So is it fair to say that these combination of factors would even exacerbate COVID-19 for the people of color even more? That's without a doubt. Um, and I'll say something about nursing homes in particular. I mean, as you mentioned, I think, you know, that the prison industrial complex warrants a whole other discussion. And we can, I think, um, you know, fully understand why uh, the conditions in prisons and jails would be um, fertile ground for the spread of COVID-19. Nursing homes are an interesting case. Nursing homes are primarily, you know, the primary payer for nursing home services in this country is Medicaid. Um, Medicaid doesn't pay a whole lot. And nursing homes are 
predominated by uh, for-profit ownership, or you could say investor-owned corporations really dominate, really dominate the industry. And where profits need to compete with people, particularly in industries where the margins are thin, you can guess what's usually going to win. And I think we saw in the case of nursing homes, they were already understaffed. They were um, already operating with very thin margins, and it wouldn't have taken much for a crisis like this to, um, to cause as much illness and death as we saw. And just to go off that, how you said with the overcrowded, understaffed nursing homes, that actually led to 40% of COVID deaths, which is an alarming rate. Yeah, that those nursing home deaths drove a great deal of mortality that we saw from, from COVID, especially um, early on, especially in New York and New Jersey. Um, it was really, it's really astonishing. So I think we spent the strong majority of the podcast pretty much building a strong argument that communities of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. I mean, even the, the numbers support that. Black Americans have accounted for 7.5 million COVID deaths. Native American and Latinx communities added an additional 8 million to that total. People of color are four to six times more likely to die from COVID than their white counterparts. You know, to me, this begs the question, even beyond morality and doing the right thing, if all you care about is your personal self-interest or the, the direct people around you, as a country, we should care about this disparity. Such a large portion of the American population being more likely to contract and die from the virus prolongs the lifespan for everyone. So as a nation, shouldn't we all want to call these issues? Absolutely. You know, even if, even if you're only driven by your own self-interest, I think it's clear now, because we've tried this, um, that repairing the economic damage from COVID is only going to be possible when we get the disease under control. Um, we had states that tried to reopen without getting the epidemic under control, and they failed. Um, you know, as it turns out, people are reluctant to go shopping. They're reluctant to go to, go to restaurants when they know that there is still an infectious disease epidemic raging. So we're not gonna be able to, uh, to prosper until we can get this epidemic under control. And we're not gonna get this epidemic under control sufficiently unless we can do it equitably. And I just think to, I cut to go back to um, the point that Jennifer made earlier about, you know, historically in this country and how there's like a historical mindset of individualism. And, you know, that's not, if it's not affecting me, it's not my problem. Um, and how that kind of relates to this um, virus and its racial disparities, right? It's kind of like this virus can ravage all the black people in the, in the country as long as it's not affecting me and my ability to walk outside with my mask on or protest to not have my mask on, then, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. But I, I, again, it's this whole historical notion of if it's not directly affecting me or my family or my ability to get in my car and go somewhere with my mask on or off, whatever, then it's not my issue. And that's kind of, again, ties into how the society views racial issues, you know, at a whole. This is kind of just a subset, um, even though this subset did end up affecting everybody. I mean, this, this, this pillaged our whole country and really did affect everyone, but that underlying notion of it's their problem, not mine, is, you know, important to note. Right, and that's kind of the common theme throughout our entire podcast, that structural racism ultimately affects everyone that lives in America. Separate yourself so much from what's going on to the rest of the country, and our structural racism predisposed us to being decimated by COVID. 
I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to uh, say this without sounding like I'm trying to tell people what to think and what to do. So bear with me. Um, but I also think that to your point, Malik, about something like this, like this, this particular COVID-19 in 2020 definitely set a precedent as far as how I think that what, how the federal government, how the president, Donald Trump, um, his administration responded or did not respond ad um, adequately to this, to this pandemic really shows how crucial and how dire and how, how other dramatic words I can't think of right now, how crucial it is that people vote and people really take the time to, to understand and learn that voting matters and the results of voting or not voting matters and they have consequences. It does not matter who you vote for, who, what your political views are. That's not what I'm talking about right now. What I'm talking about is the fact that doesn't matter what Donald Trump believes, who he is as a person, whatever that's irrelevant, his response, his administration's response to this pandemic was without a doubt inadequate. It was awful. It was, it was horrible, okay? An administration cannot respond like that to something as serious as this in the future. That cannot happen. We cannot have a president ignore all something as serious as COVID-19 and let it just rampage and, and take so many lives. It's, it's just not okay. And so this is really um, a testament to how important it is for our listeners and everybody seriously to vote and to and to vote with pride and to vote with the intent that you know your vote matters because this when you don't vote this this is this is what have to has consequences yeah just to go with that um because honestly if we would have been well informed on what was going on in the way beginning of the pandemic i think it could have like made a drastic change like i think that the whole thing could have been handled better medical people they all did the best they could but they were withheld information for so long and that did major major damage because no one knew the severity of it and it just it, it prolonged people taking action and being like hey this is serious we really need to take action right now yeah i think um political affiliations aside if you did a, a random survey of Americans, most people would, would think that our leadership dropped the ball on the pandemic response. I think that's, I think that's very objective to say. Exactly. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no denying that, that the lack of leadership uh, at the federal level, I think, is responsible primarily for where we are. But again, it dropped into this setting we, where we already have inequities both in our health and our social system. And I think, um, Malik, you were, you were suggesting before that if nothing else, wouldn't this suggest to the American people that we need a more robust healthcare system um, that can respond to the needs of everybody? And, you know, I would say yes, um, but we have this historic, this peculiar historic notion in America that some people are deserving, that some poor people are deserving and some poor people aren't deserving. And, and that has absolutely been tied to race. And that is absolutely one of the, the cultural attitudes that have prevented us from having um, a meaningful universal healthcare system. And we, we've had opportunities in the past, um, you know, within my lifetime to expand healthcare. And we failed to take it time and time again, um, because we have these weird political notions about 
who is a deserving poor person and who is an undeserving poor person. Um, and maybe, you know, as we've discussed, this particular um, crisis will reveal that that is irrelevant um, because, because when we have an infectious disease outbreak like this, um, none of us are going to be unaffected um, in the setting of the disparities that we're seeing now. And ironically, because we did, we did an episode on being colorblind, COVID-19 actually doesn't see color. So it's, um, it's a painful irony. <laughs> no, no, she didn't. <laughs> I think it's worth mentioning, because we're, we're alluding to universal health care. How did universal health care fare against COVID-19? You know, that's a, that's a good question. You know, universal health care in other nations means that people, I imagine, don't feel afraid to go to the hospital or go to the doctor when they're feeling ill because they, they don't fear that they're going to get a bill that they can't pay. I don't know how you can measure the impact of it from, from those terms. It absolutely, I think, is part of an overall um, you know, nationwide response. And I think the absence of a universal health care system in this country meant that our response was inevitably going to be incomplete because we have to compensate for that type of a system. Other nations didn't have to do that. I'm sorry. Can we just quickly, uh, we don't have to, but can we just, <laughs> can we just, okay, let me calm down because the stimulus check, I just, because I'm not an expert, I'm not a healthcare expert, not even close Okay, and, and I'm young, so I'm, I'm, I haven't been working in the working world for very, very long, but seriously, that was a joke. And I, and I think that, that that was just like a tiny, minute little like stem from the, from the horribleness that was this tree administration response. But like, can, Jennifer, can you just give your opinion maybe if you have one about kind of what, 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 just what was that? What, what was that? that what was it? You know, that's, that's, I, I, I can't speak to the motivations of, of, of some of our federal decision makers, but it's an interesting acknowledgement, whether they meant to or not, that public health emergency has economic consequences, and you can't resolve one without resolving the other. And yeah, it was an entirely inadequate response. <laughs> But, um, and I really meant to address the public health emergency, but I think, I think it demonstrated that those two things are inexplicably or inextricably linked. And it proved that the wealth gap directly affects public health crisis. As you said, whether they meant to acknowledge that, yeah. why else would you send out a stimulus check if you, didn't, if you didn't believe that these things were correlated? Right. Or if you didn't believe that such a thing was necessary to keep people from, from taking jobs that might place them at risk or place other people at risk. You know, I think it was meant to also do that, but again, entirely um, inadequate to that. I just wanted to say one more thing with the whole stimulus check thing and everything. So the fact that essential workers got no hazard pay and just continued to have to be on the front lines and work extra hard. Like my sister's a nurse and like I saw how she came home every day. We would have, she would have to come in put her clothes right in the washing machine and like run to the shower. And then like it, the emotional drainage behind it too, like is it, I, you can't even really put it into words. So the fact that the government didn't give hazard pay to these people who really deserved it and needed to be out there and they didn't have a choice is absurd. Which were predominantly people of color. So Good that point. pretty much rounds out our argument and brings us home. So Jen, this is great. 
Thank you so much. You're very insightful. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. This was amazing. Um, as always, I just wanted to uh, thank Jennifer um, for coming on for your insight. Uh, this is a great conversation. Um, great points were made. Thank you so much. Uh, we hope that you come back. <laughs> we can. Um, I mean, healthcare is a broad topic, so we wanted to turn this into a mini series. So we have a lot to break down. So this is not the first time we'll, we'll be bringing up racial disparity in healthcare. Absolutely. And like we mentioned before, uh, pandemic woke a lot of people up. Um, it really it did affect everybody in some shape or form. Um, I just want to take some time to send my condolences out to anybody who was directly affected, who lost loved ones. We're all getting through this together. We will get through it. Uh, we, we have made some progress. So, But I just, again, want to reiterate to our listeners uh, that this was a huge wake-up call um, on how important it is, how much we want to emphasize and stress uh, voting. And, you know, again, not telling you to have to what opinion to have or what thoughts to have, but I think we can all agree that in some sh- some way, shape, or form, our healthcare system needs to improve. And this, I think, definitely put the stamp on that. And speaking of stamps, um, make sure y'all go buy some stamps after you register to vote, uh, so that we can we can vote in November. All right, so thank you for listening, y'all, and we'll catch you on the next one later. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.